The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So nice to be back. I've spent the last, most of the last five weeks out at Common Ground's retreat property at Prairie Farm, Wisconsin, and on retreat myself the last two and a half weeks or so. So just returned yesterday. Really grateful to Shelley Graff, who taught a couple of weeks back, and Wynn Fricky, who taught last week. Most of you know, I'm sure that Shelley regularly teaches on Wednesday night. You can always catch their talks then. And uh, when we don't see as often, but uh, when is leading the community practice check-in on Saturday morning once a month that we do together. And then when Wynn's not busy at McAllister College teaching, we get her to teach here at Common Ground from time to time. She's here with me this morning. Yeah, and it's just... Uh, having been on retreat and just especially because of uh, the COVID virus, you know, common grounds retreat property is very quiet. A lot of the time it was just two or three of us, Matthew King, our caretaker, and then one or two other practice leaders um, doing their practice. So it's pretty quiet. And um, what do you think you notice for those who haven't done a lot of silent meditation retreats, what do we notice when even we have just a little bit of quiet, unstructured time, nothing to do, no one at home, right? We see what the mind is doing all the other time. Mm -hmm. One of the basic premises of like learning about the mind or learning about anything really is we learn things best when there's a contrast, right? So when we have a lot of quiet, we notice noise and agitation. But if the mind, body and mind, let's say, is really not quiet, really agitated, we don't notice agitation when we're agitated because it doesn't stand out. But when we're in a really quiet room, we notice all the noises, all the subtle noises that all day long we won't notice. But when the room's quiet, then we hear the fridge buzzing, you know, we hear the mice like at Prairie Farm, scratching in the internal walls. <laughs> Not a lot, but a few. And all those other sort of more subtle things that we tend to miss. And so today I want to talk about this, this very normal, uh, in a way unavoidable reality of mental proliferation, what we commonly call thinking. <laughs> Have you noticed? That's what the mind, or one of the things the mind does. It thinks. It plans, it worries, it speculates, it wonders, it compares, it judges, it hates, it loves, fantasizes, it regurgitates the past and imagines the future. I mean, it's just really amazing. I sometimes characterize this part of the mind as like an amazing production studio. Some of you probably have been out at Spirit Rock Meditation Center just north of San Francisco, really beautiful piece of land, one of our sort of motherships in our early Buddhist tradition here in the West, the Vipassana or Insight Meditation community in the West is this meditation center founded by people like James Perez and Sylvia Borstein and Jack Hornfield and others. And uh, 
if you're on the ridge overlooking the retreat center, it's pretty far up. It's the coastal foothills, not too far from the Pacific Ocean, Point Reyes, if you know that part, a national uh, park there. But anyway, on the, on the ridge, if you look down one way, you see Spirit Rock. And if you look down the other way of the ridge, you see the Lucas Ranch, where uh, Lucas, the person who produced the Star Wars, the initial Star Wars series, and then this amazing production studio where they could, you know, do all the graphics and all the makeup stuff, right, with computers. And initially, they just had little models that they filmed. And then as the technology improved, they could just make up anything with computer models and graphics. And that's like our mind. It has this amazing production studio and much more impressive than any, you know, as impressive as Hollywood is these days, what our mind can do. I mean, just like every night when we dream, that's pretty impressive how we can just completely manufacture reality that it's, you know, almost always it's so seductive. It's so intoxicating. We don't realize that this is just a construction of the mind. And this whole idea of a dream, it's a very useful metaphor for a lot of what we're waking up because we somehow imagine that this is distinctly different from when we're dreaming. But we don't realize how much of this experience right now that each of us are having is is related to a, a production studio and that act of constructing meaning, constructing reality. And so in, in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, there's um, this concept of papancha, is the Pali word for mental proliferation. And it's this uh, way that we notice, I'm sure you've noticed, and especially in more quiet moments, is how we'll have a thought, including something seemingly skillful like, I'm thinking too much. Why am I thinking about this? I don't need to be thinking about that. Now, that thought seems to be skillful, right? On the surface, at least. But then if I have that thought, like, oh, why am I thinking about this? I don't need to think about this. And then what, do, what does the mind do? It starts to think about why I'm thinking about this. Why does this always come up? Is there something I haven't seen about this? What's the underlying feeling? So, like, even if it's all Buddhist speak, you know, using the language of our practice, but we can endlessly proliferate. Often this sort of Dharma coach or this obsessing thinking about practice, even like I mentioned sometimes on retreat that I, I'll have like a meta fantasy where I'm sort of making up beautiful stories of people being nice to each other, but like on steroids, like really provocative, meaningful imaginings of people doing nice things and healing broken relationships and getting along. And, and that's proliferation. That's mental proliferation. And on and on and on it goes. Because what we discover in the end is the thing the mind is addicted to more than anything is the intensity of constructing what appears to be reality. That's our drug of choice, right? Getting high 
we're getting high all the time on this capacity the mind has to construct meaning and then to be deluded by the meaning. <laughs> There's different stories in the tradition, including one about three magicians traveling together in the woods, probably bragging about their amazing powers of magic. And, uh, and so uh, they see some bones of a tiger that, you know, had been dead for a long time and all the flesh was gone, just some old bones years later from the tiger. And like one of the magicians to brag says, well, I can, I can bring all these bones together and make a full skeleton. So he does his magic and there's the skeleton of the tiger. And the second magician says, you think that's good? I can magically make the flesh come back. And so all the flesh, it's like, you know, the perfect taxidermic tiger sitting there like you see sometimes in a museum. And then the third magician says, you think that's impressive? I can make that tiger come alive. And then what does the tiger do? Eat them up. Even though it's like an act of magic. And this is the, uh, in the tradition, in the early Buddhist tradition, these kinds of stories, you've probably heard me tell a similar story. Some of you have been around for a while about the magic tree, you know, where the, I always talk about person who's hot, finds a shady tree, really lovely shady tree sits underneath. Well, this is nice. There wasn't trees for miles, but now there's this beautiful shade tree. No, I wonder if there's any good fruit to eat. And all of a sudden he notices all this fruit in the tree. Oh, be nice to share this food with someone. All of a sudden, a nice, attractive person shows up. Oh, it'd be nice to have someone to serve the food. And, you know, on and on like this. And then wonders, this is a little suspicious that everything I want shows up. I wonder if there's a demon in the tree. Sure enough, a demon appears. I wonder if that demon's going to eat me up. Sure enough, the demon eats him up. And this is the thing about having an amazing production studio. We can imagine heavens, really nice situations. I mean, even today, maybe you've imagined your lunch as what's going to save you. Oh, for lunch today, it's Sunday. I'm going to, you know, do this special thing. And that's going to make my life worth living for the next few hours or whatever. You know, we're imagining doing or imagining some hellish thing going on that really disturbs our heart. And on and on, and it's sort of when we, in a sense, step back and observe how the mind constructs stuff, gets seduced by its own uh, constructions, and then feeds, in the deepest sense, it's feeding on the juiciness of that attachment. We're actually, surprisingly or ironically, we're feeding on the dukkha, on the suffering, the stress, of being entranced in the movie. Just like when we're watching a horror film or even a kind of meaningful drama where it's, you know, in some kind of realistic way just showing the ups and downs of human life and we're feeling every up and down that that character in the film is going through or the character in the novel is going through, we feel it. And yet in a way, we're, we feed, we feel enlivened by the attachment to the ups and downs. And we're strangely afraid of the absence of that drama, 
And this should get interesting for us. Like just to map out our situation as a human being without judgment and without reflexively thinking the Buddha teachings are correct, but just to get curious about our relationship to intensity, to drama, and the constriction, the tightness in our heart that goes with that. Like if anything nice happens to you today, just notice that we get tight when nice stuff happens. We get excited, right? We get hopeful. And if we just are in in our body, notice what it's like to be excited without judging or telling ourselves, oh, I shouldn't be tight. Just get curious about it. And how it's there when we're high or positive or hopeful, how it's there when we're afraid or upset or mad. And we're just getting, oh, oh, this is the deal with ordinary human, with the Buddha calls worldly existence, a normal, ordinary, worldly existence where we're living to feed on our experiences. And with some understanding, we, we realize our experiences are being constructed in our own heart. It's not so much the Buddha saying there isn't an external reality. He's just saying in terms of suffering and the end of suffering, what's relevant is our experience. And our experience is here in our heart, in our mind. This is where experience arises. This is where experience is felt. So all the injustices in the world, all the beauty and goodness in the world, that's being experienced here and now in our heart and mind. And so learning how to be with the world and learning how to be with our body and our life, that also happens here and now in our mind and heart. This is the whole deal right here. And this is the great irony. We are here together alone in our own heart and mind, each of our own hearts and mind, together. And we don't have to explain that. We just have to get honest about it. Because explaining it takes us in that realm of mental proliferation where we think that my conceptual map or my conceptual explanation to myself or explanation to you is the thing itself. But the thing itself is our experience right now. That's the thing itself. And any map, any conceptualization is only useful if it's telling us that, that the thing itself is our experience. That's what we need to be real with, with intimate with. But if we get confused by our story, our maps, then we, we can get seduced into being disconnected. And when we're disconnected from the way it is, the reality of here and now, then we're in that samsaric, maybe you've heard that word samsara, the cycling, the whirlpools of our drama, where we're having experience and thinking about experience, and our thinking about experience is the next experience, which we then think about. I was thinking about this this morning, (laughs) ironically, of course, to prepare a talk, you think. I was thinking about it this morning, and it's that old cliche, you know, if we're a hammer, if all we have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. 
So if we're identified, if the mind is really transfixed, identified with the thinking process, the analyzing, imagining, constructing process of our, this talent of producing meaning, conceptual meaning, then everything looks like, everything in our experience looks like something to think about. I see Shannon, she's showing up on my screen, and Alice, and you know a lot of you who I have history with, and then when I see, have that perception, the impulse is to think. Oh, I know Alice, you know, and on and on like that. Because that's what we do with experience. If I step outside, it's cold. And all of those thoughts, it's like uh, one teacher calls them like the makeup. You're putting up makeup, putting on a costume. So all of my past experience with weather and with cool temperature informs that moment I step outside and I feel the coldness, but it's all getting dressed up with all of those tendencies in my heart and the production studio goes uh, full time and I'm having all kinds of thought. Well, you know, it's, what do you expect? It's December 20th. You know, this is supposed to be cold and, oh yeah, but there's global and on and on. And it's not about whether the thoughts are skillful or unskillful. We're really talking at a more subtle level. We're inviting the mind to notice this mental proliferation, this word papancha. In one of the discourses, the Buddha talks about how this, um, <laughs> some of you know, Venerable Anuruddha, who is the Buddha's cousin, and he ordained uh, after the Buddha's awakening. Then the Buddha eventually, a few years after his awakening, wandered through the area where he was raised, and several of his cousins then ordained as practitioners, Buddhist monks. And uh, eventually, some of the females in his family also ordained and became wise, awakened ones, as we say in the tradition. And uh, But anyway, this one cousin, Anuruddha, there's some really interesting stories about mental proliferation. So I'll just give you two stories. One is, um, let me just find it. Oh, here it is. <laughs> one especially funny story is, he was meditating and, uh, you know, as it, you sort of practice on your own for a while and then kind of hit a wall and you'd go see one of the senior people. And if not the Buddha himself, maybe like Sariputta, Buddha's number one chief disciple. So in this case, Anuruddha found Sariputta and it was sort of like a practice check-in. Like some of you have been on retreat. Some retreats, you get a one-to-one -one meeting with the teacher and you show up, you know, and you have your five or 10 minutes and you sort of tell the person, okay, when I'm sitting or when I'm just going about my day, this is what happens. This is how I'm aware of what's happening. And then this is what happens. And you kind of give a blow by blow of what it's like to have this kind of mind doing what this kind of mind does. And then the teacher hopefully intuits sort of maybe what you're not seeing and points you in that direction. So Anuruddha sits down with Venerable Sariputta, the chief disciple of the Buddha, and he's a pretty impressive meditator. So this is how he reports his meditation, right? I can see the thousandfold world system. So basically he's saying, I'm psychic. I can, wherever I direct my attention, I see it. 
I want to know what's going on in Russia. I see it. So that's pretty impressive. And then he says, strenuous and unshaken is my energy, right? He has unbroken persistence. He doesn't get tired. And then he says, mindfulness is set up, is established in me, untroubled. So the stability of mindfulness, unwavering mindfulness. My body is calmed and not perturbed. He's feeling pretty tranquil. He's feeling good too, right? It's pleasant. My mind is collected, still one-pointed, right? In the present moment. Yet for all of that, my heart is not released from the asawas. And so the word asawa means either gets translated as outflows or influxes, right? It's just the cycling, the whirlpools of drama. They're still going on. They might be more subtle, right? Than some ordinary folks who aren't super meditators like myself. But I realize I'm still suffering as a human being. My mind's still not released, right? Not free from grasping. Now here's, so Sariputta is like, these are really short meetings, which is really impressive, you know? They might have been away from a teacher for months and just had a five-minute interaction or less. The teacher knows just what to say. And this is just like so wonderful, this short response that Sariputta has to Venerable Anuruddha. As to your statement about seeing the thousand-fold world systems, that is just your conceit, right? I see the thousand, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, you're seeing something but what's really going on is like that ownership of that power, right? As to your statement about being strenuous and unshaken and so forth, that is just arrogance. Now think of, don't think of this as Sariputta judging. He's just sort of changing the lens on how Anuruddha should see what's going on. As to your statement about your heart not being released, from the asawas, from the ongoing flows of the mind, that's just worrying or mental proliferation. It would be indeed, it would indeed be well for you if you were to abandon these three conditions, if you were not to think about them, to proliferate around them, but were to focus your mind on the deathless element. And this brings me to the point that I wanted to really center the talk around where the Buddha in the next story with Venerable Anuruddha, this involves the Buddha. And this is before Anuruddha himself became one, another one of the awakened ones, right? Finished his practice, had the same insight that the Buddha had, same release of the heart, unshakable release of the heart. And so again, Venerable Anuruddha, who's sort of known for being a really hotshot meditator, like a lot of concentration. And you can get sort of spellbound by your own powerful mind and concentrated mind. So here's Venerable Anuruddha meditating. And what arises in this very concentrated mind are some really wholesome thoughts. And here are the thoughts that arose in Anuruddha's mind while meditating. This practice, this Dhamma, is for one with few desires, not for one with strong desires. This practice is for one who is content, not for one who is not content. This practice is for one who appreciates solitude, not for one who delights in complications, social complications. 
This practice is for one who's energetic, not for one who is lazy. This practice is for one with the stability of mindfulness, not for one who is muddled-minded. This practice is for one who is concentrated, not for one unconcentrated. This practice is for one who is wise, not unwise. And there's different variations of this story, but either the Buddha psychically realizes what's going on in Anuruddha's meditation, or another way the story is told is Anuruddha went to the Buddha eventually, and we had one of those practice meetings and sort of said, I was practicing, and these seven thoughts arose in my mind. And the Buddha, and it's a perfect example, in about one minute, the Buddha gives him a very powerful instruction. And you see what a great teacher is, because the Buddha doesn't sort of say, hey, you're just thinking about stuff you don't need to think about, which is sort of what he means, but he does it in a nice way. He basically says, these are the thoughts of a great man, right, or a great person. He says Atanaruta. He sort of acknowledges, yeah, those are very beautiful, wise thoughts. Good job, Anuruddha. <laughs> and then he says, let me give you an eighth thought to think about. <laughs> and this is really the take home from the talk today. And he says to Anuruddha, this practice is for one who delights in non-proliferation, who takes delight in non-proliferation, right? Who takes delight in non-proliferation, not for one who likes proliferation. Now that's enough. Just that little gem is enough for us to take away from this talk today. As you go about your day-to-day, as the next time you have some silent time to do a 30-minute meditation or whatever, then just bring up that little gem from the practice meeting that Venerable Anuruddha had with the Buddha 2,500 years ago, where he sees that Venerable Anuruddha has got a lot of concentration, a lot of wholesomeness, but he's kind of spellbound by his own beautiful thoughts about the practice and caught in his own little wholesome, relatively wholesome whirlpool of mental proliferation. I mean, we could be thinking about how uh, nobody likes me, Or how can I be the all-powerful one where everybody does what I want, right? There are a lot of whirlpools of thinking that aren't so wholesome than the kind of whirlpool that Venerable Anuruddha was caught in. But the Buddha gives him this little gem. How about thinking about contemplating, using the thought as a jumping-off point? Like, what is the reality of non-proliferation? So then immediately, like I said at the beginning of the talk, when I'm interested in non-proliferation, I really start noticing proliferation. When I'm interested in not hitching the next conceptual train, you know, where one thought leads to the next, and then I start noticing all those on-ramps, all those trains that I could think about this, I could worry about that, I could plan this, I could think about lunch, I could think about lunch for the rest of the week, an omelet on Monday, cheese sandwich on Tuesday, you know, just on and on like that. It's amazing what we think about. One of my best friends who recently passed away, longtime meditation buddy, someone who taught in the very early years of Common Ground. We used to teach the intro class together, Paul Noor, back in the mid-90s. Um, but I remember back then in the mid-90s, we were coming back from a retreat 
driving back from a, a nine-day retreat together. And Paul said, yeah, during that retreat, it's like my mind took hold of this need to absolutely figure out the top 20 movies of all time in the correct order. And, and it's like these little obsessions, like I got to figure, and Paul was a you know a really great meditator in terms of you know just experience and, and depth of practice. But we get in these loops that just feels like this is what I meant about the hammer. Everything looks like a nail. So when one of the deep habits is we've become over-reliant on using thinking to resolve, especially the deeper issues, existential issues of life. And this is, I remember this, this sort of insight. I have to admit I was a little bit under the influence of of um, something, which I won't talk about right now. <laughs> this is way back in like 82. And, uh, but up in the mountains in Alaska with a couple good spiritual buddies, just beginning my meditation practice, so still with some other habits of mind. <laughs> and, uh, but I really saw this loop, the mind chasing its own tail, mental proliferation. I really saw it for where, what it is not leading anywhere, endlessly not leading anywhere, yet always thinking, always feeling like that's the next thing to do. So like, even when I really was clear that the mind was chasing its own tail, what did the mind want to do? It wanted to think about that the mind is chasing its own tail. It's always the same thing. The mind thinks whenever it has an insight, let me think about it. Whenever it has a problem, let me think about this. Whenever things are going well, let me think about why things are going well or how things are going well. Or That's our go-to response to everything is to proliferate and then in a way to be spellbound by our own mental proliferation. Either spellbound by being disgusted by it, being bored by it, that's caught being caught in our own mental constructions or being entranced by it, thinking that that's the most wonderful thought, you know, most important thought. Another very common uh, experience of people who do longer meditation retreats is because we're not supposed to read much or write or, you know, take notes of, but we get good ideas. And so we're, okay, I'll just jot this down. And so at the end of a month-long retreat or a couple-week retreat or whatever, even a weekend retreat, you have a long list. Okay, don't forget this. Do this when I get home. And the interesting thing, those thoughts seem so brilliant, so important. And when you get home, you might have a list of 20 things. Maybe one or two will be something you'll follow through with. And even because you're following through doesn't mean it was worth following through. But it's, it's just so amazing how something can seem important in the moment and turn up not to be so important. How many times have I thought, I need to say this to win? It's like, really? <laughs> you know, and especially if I have too much caffeine, and then it's like so many things that need to be said to this person, to that person, need to be done. And so many of the world's problems and issues naturally resolve themselves if we just give a little bit of space. I'm not saying there aren't things we need to say to people. But a lot of it just naturally will come up gracefully, naturally in conversations without 
the mind having to make a point to do or say or fix, but there will be just natural opportunities to resolve what needs to be resolved. And this is really conducive of faith when we see this about life, that we don't have to fix everything. So this is our encouragement, you know, with... uh, with our practice is it's not so much about repressing the thinking mind. It's really wishing, desiring in a wholesome way to understand it. What is this endless, this sort of sometimes raging beast, sometimes a very quiet, soothing. There's this new phenomenon. I'm sure most of you know this, but I'm a little behind the times in terms of like the YouTube world, but the, I forget what it's called, but where people are like whispering on these YouTube videos. I'm sure some of you, someone can post what all that stuff is called, you know, where they use a quiet voice. And people find it really soothing to like have somebody talking to them in this sort of whispery voice. And so sometimes the mental, there it is, ASMR. Thanks, Roseanne. (laughs) Anybody know what that acronym stands for? I'm assuming it's an acronym. But in any case, it does something, you know, like when a mother or grandmother or some caretaker is whispering, you know, soothing, it's self-soothing that. So sometimes mental proliferation has that sort of soothing quality. Sometimes it's a really harsh voice. Sometimes it's this brilliant Dharma voice that just has this, you know, powerful clarity. And let me tell you the truth. This is how it is. Let me lay it out for you. And it's sort of that way. Sometimes it's a grumbly, grumpy, irritated voice. Sometimes it's a nihilistic voice. Nothing matters. Who cares? I'm done. I'm out of here. So we have this mental proliferation can have many, many different voices. But in a way, it all has the same voice, which is this, you know, addiction. Basically, like those three magicians where we construct something, we get enchanted by our constructed in construction, we get burnt, not because the mind constructed something, but because the mind misunderstood the mental construction. We don't have to get rid of the production studio. First of all, we can't, right? That just comes with taking birth. But we don't need to get confused by what our mind constructs. And I'll leave us with this last image. This is from a series, really powerful series of Dharma talks um, by uh, Venerable K. Nyanananda. He's a Sri Lankan Buddhist monk who died, uh, I think maybe in the 80s, but a couple decades back. And uh, really amazing teacher. And Venerable uh, Bhikkhu Analio, this uh, one of my teachers, uh, he translated, and this is available at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies website, um, these series of 33 lectures on Nibbana, on, on the cessation of, cessation of proliferation. That's one of the ways the Buddha defines, he defines Nibbana, the experience of the release of our heart. He defines it in a number of ways, including uh, the mind not fixated not caught up in proliferation, but instead delighting in non-proliferation, right? That's the takeaway. And so um, 
in that in that series of lectures, I think at lecture 11, if you're going to listen to it, it's both you can read it, but um, you can also watch this uh, German monk, my t- one of my teachers, Venerable Analio, uh, read his transcription of Venerable Yanananda's talk on Nibbana, talk number 11 in this case, where he gives us, well, he uses this example over and over again, whether it's sometimes he uses it as a magician show or just any really great theater and a beautiful theater that of course is dark so that the lighting really stands out. And when we're watching a really good play, the props that they use and even the three minute break between the second act and the third act, none of that really bothers us if it's a really well-written, well-acted play, right? We're just totally engrossed. We believe the scenery, we believe everything, we get caught up. And then he says, then, so you imagine you're watching one of those great plays and you're just totally there in the story, in the drama, and you're feeling it. That's called life, right? And then all of a sudden, let's say it's the middle of the day, all of a sudden, the walls and ceiling of the theater just disappear, including the internal walls of the theater. So all of a sudden, you see the stage folks behind the scenes, the lighter, but you see the city traffic, you hear the birds, the trees, the midday sun. You would be completely, very quickly disenchanted with the drama of the play. It just wouldn't grab the heart because there's like this whole scene of Minneapolis and traffic and kids playing in the playground and everything going on around us, right? And the and you'd notice the makeup on the actors and you'd see, oh, that's just the stool. That's not this thing that I was imagining that they were using to sort of represent some other thing, right? That they do in plays, just some set piece. And we lose that enchantment. And so this, this is the sort of resolution of this addiction we have to our mental constructions is just to not to suppress them, but to understand that mental activity, thinking, planning, imagining, it's just that. And it's, it's just one of the many aspects, the diversity of what's coming and going in the moment. And we don't have the mind, the heart doesn't need to come into a fixed or gripped relationship to how we make sense. So another way to think about this, this uh, teaching, this little gem from the Buddha, this delighting and non-proliferation that we, I'm inviting us all to reflect on this week, delighting and the non-proliferation of the thinking mind is not being dependent on any conceptual meaning. We're not afraid Like if the mind that thinks continues to think and continues to construct meaning, mental or uh, conceptual meaning, fine, do that. But I'm practicing not being in need of meaning. Oh, yeah. And so what is this heart, this mind, in this non-dependence on mental proliferation, this non-dependence on concepts, which is not the same as not having thought or concepts, 
but the, not, the non-gripping of them. And this is something we can just explore sitting on the couch. Whenever there's just sort of a pause where we're not, it's a, you know obviously harder to do this reflection when we're in the middle of a conversation. But even then, depending on the kind of conversation, we can be interested. Oh, yeah. But that's a more graduate level of this practice. So in the beginning, just in those places where it's a little more simple and we're not talking and we just notice that internal dialogue and then we can explore the non-dependence and delighting in a way, in the sense, in the space between the thoughts where the mind isn't dependent on thoughts or the meaning that thoughts construct. And hope to see most of you next Sunday. Take care, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.